Glad that you're here. Glad you can connect maybe to someone new or an old friend. My name is Drew. I'm the pastor here at Hope Community Church. Uh, excited to be here with you. Um, and a little bit tired, maybe a lot tired, because I spent my week um, at camp, actually, up at Camp Lebanon. I got the chance to speak at the um, junior high uh, camp, which is a thrill just to be in a, uh, it's fun to see all the kids growing and learning and um, we had a whole lot of fun. We had a couple hopesters here with us. Jail and my daughter Zoe got to go up. Um, it was just fun to be there with, with them and the young family came up with us. So we had a lot, a lot of fun. Got to teach in a tent, which kind of felt fun in old school uh, at night to get to preach in a tent. Um, we, it, was, it was a beautiful week. It, we had a couple days that were just like in the 70s. It was, it was so good. Um, a lot of fun. I've loved, uh, I too have worked at camp and uh, love camping and just love being outside. Uh, and so it's been a joy. This week, I had a, a kind of interesting privilege, I'll say. Um, I got to speak at night and, and at some other chapels and do some teaching and uh, got to be in some panels and things and get lots of interesting questions from junior hires. But the thing I got to do there, I actually got to know some kids I would ne- never have met, is I got to work the buddy bench. This is a picture. Someone actually caught me hanging out at the buddy bench. It's a bench they have at the waterfront. When you go swimming at camp, you have to have a buddy with you so that you know, you know like they kind of keep you safe and you're together and they have these buddy checks where they make sure everyone's you know, safe and still, still swimming. Um, and they have a bench there. So if you don't have a buddy at that moment, like someone in your cabin doesn't want to swim, you can sit on the buddy bench and then someone can walk by and go like, oh, I need a buddy too. And then you swim, which is kind of fun. There's kids who meet each other who've never met. But sometimes you can imagine uh, you might sit for a little while at the buddy bench. Um, and so I got to, I mean, it's my dream job. I got to sit on this bench in the shade and talk to kids and kind of distract them while they were waiting for a buddy. Uh, this is Charles, Chuck, who prefers not to be called Chuck. <laughs> Actually, I learned uh, that I got to sit with. Uh, he came by and we hung out for a while while he waited for a buddy. I was actually sitting with a different kid uh, at camp, though. Uh, and I was thinking about what we're, what we're studying today, this uh, passage we're looking at, and, and looking at this, the idea of King David. And ultimately, I was just thinking a lot about, as I was preparing for today, about God's kingdom. And one of the things that how God's kingdom looks so different than uh, the other kingdoms we see around us, and even the own kingdoms we try to build, how God just has the, uh, this kingdom we, we want, right? The one we really ultimately desire, the king we ultimately desire. And so I was thinking about that, and I was talking to a, a seventh grader, and he sat down on the buddy bench, and we were chatting, and I thought, oh man, I'm gonna kind of try, I'm gonna ask him, maybe he can help me think through this. And I was thinking how camp is this great kind of uh, moment, this week of your life that feels I, a bit like, I don't know, like a pure like kingdom of God experience. There's people there who love you, um, no matter who you are, there's people, you get opportunity to worship God all the time throughout the day. There's kind of this blending of like, there's not these um, kind of clear boundaries of when you're worshiping. It's like, you're just in creation and you're singing songs and kids are walking by singing worship songs and kids are studying scripture and, and they're just having fun together playing capture the flag. And so I said, isn't this kind of like we're, isn't just magical, man? It's what a week, right? It's towards the end of the week. Don't you feel like this is like, we get a little taste of the kingdom of God, like what it's gonna be like someday. You know, and I, and I just, you know, I was, I'm sure I was going on and on about, isn't this incredible? It's like everything, people love each other and people are selfless and it just feels like, I mean, when else do you get this experience, right? We're gonna go back home and it's just not gonna be the same. And, and he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I hate it here. <laughs> I said, oh, 
cool. Well, I hope you <laughs> that ruined my cool. I thought I had this great story to tell our church. And he said, well, I, I don't know. The guy in my cabin said he doesn't like me. Another guy told me I'm annoying. I feel like I can't find anyone. And he said, I'm sitting at the buddy bench with no buddy to swim with. So this doesn't feel very different than regular life. I thought, oh, you're, you're kind of right. Like what a, what a great observation. What a great, <laughs> he's living this thing. And I think this really hopefully captures a little, this does for me capture a little bit of what we're going to look at today as we look at what God's kingdom is, who King David is, but also um, who, who the, the greatest king, the king of kings, right? Who King Jesus really is. Because I think I feel this, there's moments I have. Uh, we have moments uh, we, with many of you in our church I feel like hey, we're getting this, this sweet glimpse of what it's going to be like one day when all things are right, when, how the kingdom of God really works, how we're created to be, even when it, what it was like in the garden in the beginning and what it will be like one day. But often it's uh, interrupted pretty quickly with brokenness, with selfishness, uh, with a reminder that I'm not necessarily in that yet. So that's what we're going to look at today. Hopefully kind of think through what does that look like? How do we think about that? How do we live a life still? in that, even though we get glimpses of this kingdom, what does it look like to live in that? And so we're in a series where we're looking at the story of the Bible in 16 verses. Um, and we're, we're cruising through. I think we're over halfway now. And uh, we're just picking up moments throughout scripture to better understand the whole story of what scripture is and how, how that story all fits in, what that's building to, and ultimately how that story points to Jesus. And so we got a bunch of stops on our tour here. And today we are at King David. So we went through a bunch of stops. We're almost to the birth of Jesus. Um, and I'm excited for today. King David is one that encourages me uh, often uh, in thinking about Jesus as our king. Changes uh, can change my day, absolutely. And uh, even changed in my sermon prep, I was feeling tired, exhausted, thinking, oh, I gotta get this right. Uh, and even in studying this, I was like, okay, Jesus, you're still king. You're still good. You're still in control. And so we're going to do a quick little uh, recap here. So we remember where we're at. The story starts with creation and a God who creates all things and a God who is good. It reminds us that a good God made things and called it very good. And it was. Then he creates human beings in his image. He creates them. He makes people to bless and take care of creation. This is really kind of critical to the rest of this story is that he made the people to be a blessing, to bless others, to take care of and steward creation. His people would be like little images of him, pointing people to God, blessing them. People would see his people and they would say, well, I wanna know that God who made those people. Made people to glorify him and worship him. Which sounds great, which sounds good. Uh, it sounds like the ultimate camp experience. But the other camp experience, the other real experience we experience now is from the fall. God's people, Adam and Eve, decide to choose disobedience, to choose not to be a blessing, but instead to bless themselves. In fact, even to say, uh, we could say, kind of make their own name known. They thought maybe they didn't need God. Maybe God even was lying to them. The serpent deceives them. They even could view themselves as God or wishing they could be God. They eat of fruit. They bring sin and death into the world. And instead of blessing, they now bring curse into the world. So instead of doing the thing they were made to do, which is bless, to be a blessing and to be blessed, they now bring a curse and curse others. 
They walk away from God. They turn from the one they were made to worship, to love. And they turn away. But God makes a promise to them. In Genesis 3, he says that he will come back. That he'll crush the serpent. He'll end sin and death. This is like our first gospel uh, proclaimed in scripture. Right away, this happens. People turn from God and God right away promises, this isn't going to be the end though. I'm not leaving you. I'm still with you and proclaims his first gospel. He says that he's going to, that Satan will bruise the son of the woman. We know actually will will kill him, Jesus, but the son will crush his head and put an end to Satan and his schemes and sin and death. And we know Jesus doesn't actually, he doesn't actually stay dead. We know he's killed on a cross, but rises from the dead and defeats sin and death. And so the story we might at that point think, oh, just ends here. Like then Eve must have a son and he, ends it, but the story continues on and on, and we get to see what this curse looks like throughout history. And so the next stop on our stop, number five, is Abraham, where God comes to a man who was worshiping the moon. He was a nomad, had no home. This happens right after um, all the people try to build the Tower of Babel, and they say, we're going to make our name known. We're going to be famous. We're going to build a tower to heaven. God says, no, and he scatters them, destroys their tower, and says, I will make my name known. And he goes to Abraham and says, I'll make your name known. And again, your people will be a blessing and they will bless the world. And ultimately they'll bear my image again. So he makes this covenant with Abraham, a faithful promise to never leave him and rescue his people from sin. And the story continues. Abraham has children and eventually uh, in his line is Judah. Judah, we hear the promise continued. We hear that God would bring a king about who will rule his kingdom unlike other kings and he'll come through the line of Judah. In the process there, God's people are enslaved uh, in Egypt and God rescues them. We hear the story of the Passover lamb where uh, innocent lamb's blood is shed and and put over the doors so that death would pass over them. It was a sign of of their obedience to God and God would know who his people were. And so death passes over and God's people are free. They go through the Red Sea, remember this story. And Moses becomes the one who now leads God's people to freedom. But Moses isn't the one, the king who's coming to rescue them. He is one though that continues to point God's people back to God, trying to encourage them to be a blessing, to love God and love people well. And in that, they create a a system, a sacrificial system where they do shed the blood of, of, of lambs and goats, and that blood is shed to pay the price, the death that is owed because of the sin of God's people, because of this curse and sin that we still see. And that continues over and over and over. Uh, blood is shed to pay for sin. Blood is shed to pay for sin. Death does not seem to end. The cycle just continues. And our stop number eight, is the law where God then brings to Moses the law. They say, this is what I want my people to look, this is what I want to look like. And if you can obey these things perfectly, then you got it. And actually he brings the law in as a way. We heard Martin Luther say, this is just a way to kind of identify the disease. So we know we have it. And the gospel is what actually comes and cures disease. So the law comes in and we, we realize we can't obey. We can't be the people God wanted us to be on our own. We need God. We need ultimately one who could lead us, change us, and bring us back to the way we were created to be a blessing. And to be a, to be a blessing and to be blessed. 
people who would bear God's image once again. And so the law shows us this last week. We got to look at that while we um, worshiped with First Baptist and um, Pastor Renee got to translate here with us as a special week as we looked at why the law is so important to ultimately show us our great need for our God to come and rescue us and say, you, you're not gonna do this on your own. Over and over, we have this idea that we're gonna do it on our own. We, we're gonna make our name great. We got it. God, I'll let you know when we figure it out. And forgetting that all along, God is the one who's gonna do this. We get to join his work. We get to be blessed by him. But over and over, we want to do it on our own. And so historically here in the timeline, now we get to our day today, which is King David. And this is, uh, in the history, people then start asking for a king. So God's people say, this isn't working. We were rescued from Egypt. We're still not really together. We're still sinning. We're still turning from God. This law doesn't seem to be doing it. We still see animals sacrificed, death still coming. We need a king who will lead us. A king who can continue to make our people, people who worship God, who can help us conquer those around us, who can make us great again. Different motives there coming out, right? Maybe make, make our name great again. And so God's people wanted someone to lead them, care for them, be their leader, be their king. The kings, kingdoms around them had rulers and they were seeing what was happening there and they said, we want a king too. And they're seeing this promise of a king who would rescue them, who'd make all things good and right. This king that would come through Judah. And so they cry out, we want a king. And so they get Saul, their first king. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, not Judah. Maybe could be a first indication this isn't the the right step. And Saul does not lead his people to worship God. Saul, as many other kings or leaders, actually turn their people to worshiping idols. Often even the idols of one of their wives end up marrying lots of women um, or making women marry them and they end up worshiping them or sometimes they worship them because they kind of have to in order, they marry someone because there's a negotiation, right? An exchange that happens or they get land or wealth because two families are coming together and then that they also have to worship and you've got all this comes from them wanting to build their kingdoms. And so Saul begins that kind of history He's not the king that's seeking the Lord. And pretty quickly we see not the one that should be leading the people. So Samuel, who is a prophet at the time, a prophet, one who's speaking for God, has this connection with God. He's the one who's God sent to say, hey, this isn't working. Samuel is sent to find the better king and he finds a young boy named David. He's the son of Jesse, who is in the family of Judah. He announces his youngest son, who is just a shepherd boy, David, and Samuel actually anoints him to be one day the king. If it helps, maybe the family line here. We looked at this another week. We've got Abraham, right, who's given this covenant, this promise. He has Isaac, who has Jacob. Jacob's the one who has kids with these four, two wives and their two servants. And one of them is Judah, right? And we hear through Abraham's line, through Judah, the son of Jacob and Leah, we're going to get the king, the one who will come one day and make all things right. The true king, the good king. And so that's through the line we get David. Again, not the oldest son, not the strongest, not maybe the one that would be picked. He was a young shepherd boy. And Samuel comes to him and anoints him and says, you're going to be a king. And so David waits it out a little bit and he has an opportunity here. We know 
Probably the most popular known story of David is David and Goliath, a story that's known culturally throughout all different people, right? It's not even a story you need to know your Bibles. If you just said David and Goliath, people would know, right? It's the term used when you watch sporting events. There seems to be one team that's so much better and more powerful than the underdogs when it's like the, the original underdog story. And so David, this young shepherd, arrives on the battlefield and God's people, the Israelites, are fighting the Philistines and the Philistines have this giant named Goliath. He has an opportunity to take out this giant. They're all saying, we can't do it. Saul says, there's no way. How can we take out this giant? This guy is going to devour us. He's actually even yelling, like, I'm going to devour you. And they think, there's, we don't know how we can take this guy. How can we win this battle? They look too big and too strong. And uh, David shows up. I think he's bringing food to his brothers who are fighting. And he says, oh, I, I can do it. I mean, again, this young boy, young shepherd, shouldn't even be there. And then he says, I'll take him out. And Saul says to him, you're young, weak. You're just a child. You can't defeat giants. This is really important. This is a, this is a thing that happens over and over in God's kingdom. You're young and you're weak. You're just a child. You can't defeat the giant. So in Saul's kingdom, power and strength, winning comes often from brute force from wealth, from muscle and brains, not, not from God. It comes from all that, that you can muster up, strategy that you can muster up. And he's like, I don't, we gotta figure out a way to beat this, this giant. And David says, well, I just will. God has rescued me before. God, he tells a story how God uh, allowed him to like wrestle a lion. He says, if God can do that through me, he can do this. Our God is big and powerful. Because in David's kingdom, power comes from the Lord. As if like him decreasing and being small and young and a child is actually better because then God can increase and do this. In fact, David then, uh, they say, okay, and he tries to put the armor on, if you remember this story, the armor, and it's like too big for him. So he goes out just, just in his clothes. And he doesn't come out with a sword or a spear or a shield. He has rocks and a sling. And Goliath... Uh, tells him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy you. I mean, it's a huge giant. I mean, you're bringing it, this is laughable. David says uh, this, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. The battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. This boy walks out faced with a giant who should destroy him. And he says, oh, it's, you don't get it. The battle isn't about the sword or the spear, this strength or just your strength. It's the Lord that saves. And you have no chance if you're, if you're battling the Lord. It's this little glimpse into this economy that works in God's kingdom, where God is powerful and good and saves his people, even when giants that seem over, uh, you know, unable to overcome are, in, are facing them. And so he does. We know the story. He does actually uh, defeat Goliath. In fact, he decapitates Goliath and brings his head back. Um, it's incredible. His name becomes known. He's this kid. And eventually he becomes king, even as Saul tries to stop him from becoming king. And David becomes a great king. In fact, probably the, the greatest, the most popular, the, the one that king all people love historically with these people. 
He rules uh, after uh, trying to go after God's heart. He's still right. He's still cursed. He's still broken, but he tries to rule and still bring God's people back to the Lord. He wins battles, and in fact, he works really hard to consolidate his power and eventually take over Jerusalem so that God's people could have a place and could have like a capital. And he does it. He eventually defeats and takes Jerusalem. And there's a story uh, of David actually marching, dancing into Jerusalem as they make it their home, their capital, God's people's place. And this is where our story, our our verse today kind of lands. This is where we, we are in the story. David has come into Jerusalem He's, he's, he's built this empire. He's, he's done it. He's this great king. He's powerful. And he says, um, uh, and God says this to him. We hear and stop number nine, I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this is the verse that comes from 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. This is God, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom He's the one who will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is God speaking to David. Where do we get here? It's actually really important to understand what happens right before this. David dances in with God, with the ark and God's presence into Jerusalem. He's excited. We got the place. This is it. I like our kingdoms finally coming together. This is what the people wanted, a king who would usher them. Maybe he is the one. Maybe David's the one that was promised it's gonna crush the serpent. He's going to make our people great. Our names will be known. Our kingdom will be known. We'll be powerful. We can overthrow and take over other kingdoms around us and grow and grow. He must be the one. Here's how this happens. We get there, uh, and David, this is what happened. This is David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan, to the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar. This is um, David. He says to Nathan, the prophet, his friend, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. David has this idea. He says, now that I've conquered this, I live in this wonderful house. A house of cedar means like it's nice. Cedar was nice uh, to build a home out of of cedar. Now I live in this great place. I realize God, the ark of God, God's presence in this ark of the covenant is just in a tent forever as we were in, God's people were in the wilderness. We just had it in this tent as we moved around. And now we should build God like a permanent home. We shouldn't make him live out in the tent in our yard. We should bring him in. He has this idea now that, and it's great. Nathan says, whatever you have in mind, go ahead. The Lord is with you. He says, okay, that's good. Like you're, there's kind of a sense here. I think of multiple things going on with David. He's He's incur- he wants God to have a place, a permanent place, this temple that they could build. And, I, and there also seems to be a, like a, a, a secondary thing maybe that David says like, okay, now I've done all this. I built my kingdom and now I'm gonna let God come live in my kingdom. Almost as a sense like uh, uh, maybe a little bit of missing what's going on here. He's saying, I have done so, look at this great kingdom we've built. Hey God, if you'd like, you don't have to live in a tent anymore. You can live with us. A little, it's like a, I know he's cursed, like all of us, he's broken, but there's a sense that David now says, okay, God, I've done what I needed to do. Now it's your turn. We can build you your house. 
It's really important to understand this. Because David is a great king, but also there's a sense of him always building his kingdom and then kind of allowing God to join his kingdom at times rather than him joining God's kingdom. Now there's lots of times, right? He, he, he's the king who doesn't turn to idols. He's the king who continually repents and says, I'm, I'm wrong. If you read the Psalms, which many are written by him, he's crying out, God, I need you. God, I, I need to come back to you. God, I was wrong. I sinned. This is one of the, the, great, the great things about David that we should admire is his great repentance. But David still was just a man who was cursed. And so then God comes to him and says, actually comes to Nathan and says, Nathan, tell him, I actually don't know if I want him to build. I, I didn't tell him I need you to build me a, a temple because I'm actually going to build something and I'm actually going to make my name known in a way he never could. And so then that's the verse we have for today. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He says, hey, I can do this. Remember, I can establish the kingdom. Remember when I defeated Goliath? That wasn't because you were strong and built an army. It was because I defeated him. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know at this, like when we're, when we're reading this, hope we can go, Jesus is the one who will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom. David, I love that you want to do this, but I'm gonna build a house, you don't understand, a house that all people can come to. Not just Jewish people, a house that the world can come into. And I'm gonna establish a king who all people will be ruled by and a king who is good and right and isn't under this curse. So he establishes, we see that David's story continues. He actually is really successful. He conquers lots of people, uh, becomes wealthy. Uh, we do see the, the curse affect him strongly in a few stories, I mean, especially one of the story of Bathsheba. If you know the story, David is looking out of his window and he sees a woman bathing and he desires her. And so it, it goes again into kind of his instinct to like build his kingdom and what he wants. And so he actually has this woman's husband killed. He sends her husband out on the front lines of battle so he would die so he could then have her. That's, that's pretty cursed, right? He still feels that effect. I want to build my kingdom for me. He does become a man who repents and turns to God in, in his sin, but still broken, not the one who's coming to rescue, not the king of kings who will bring the people to the place that they desire, this, this place without a curse, this place of, of blessing, this place where things are made right and death no longer exists. And we see this same thing, right? We've talked about this already, the same pattern over and over in God's people from the beginning, making their own name known. Not God's, but their name known. We see this as Adam and Eve turn away from God. We see this as they build the Tower of Babel, building their own kingdom, not inviting God to their kingdom. Maybe sometimes building a kingdom saying, God, if you want to be a part of it, you can. We kind of have a plan though. We kind of have rules here. Not living as children in God's kingdom, but again, inviting God to their kingdom. Not recognizing him as king, but really ultimately themselves, trying to put themselves as king. And we just see that continue, even in David, who is a great king. And God here points us today, as we look at this passage, he says, David, there will be a great king who will establish his kingdom forever, a kingdom that will never end. And he will establish a house 
for his family so that all can be a part of it. And they're going to come from your line. It's going to be in your family. It's just not yet. But we see this curse over and over again. I, I saw this recently. A friend, uh, a pastor posted this online. This is a note he found in his nine-year-old's room while he was cleaning it one day. A note that he wrote, uh, he said he thinks to his siblings. It says, my dear subjects, I shall command you and you shall obey. I will be a great king. I will have a little more wealth than you and a little more power. It seems like he's, a, he's not a terrible king. Just, he just wants a little more wealth and a little bit more power than them. I don't know, he just like wrote a decree, I guess. I love it. I imagine like a nine-year-old boy standing on his bed declaring this decree to the household. I am your king. You are my servants. Or if I think of uh, the king around us, if you think of a movie like Aladdin, actually this week I asked a kid, uh, favorite Disney movie, and he said Aladdin. And I said, oh, I love Aladdin. He's like, yeah, they should make an animated version of that. I was like, Harper, like, what? Did they make a live action one? What are you talking about? Oh, I had to share the good news of the animated version of Aladdin with this kid. Aladdin, right, all, all those movies kind of have this picture of these kings, right, or these leaders who are not great, whether they're a nine-year-old who just wants a little more power, but I think this, the curse, we still feel it in, a, in an image like Jafar, right? He's this, this cruel leader who's willing to do anything to get power, and then he eventually, if you remember at the end of the movie, spoiler, I think it's 30 years old or whatever it is now, 35 years old, but it, uh, he, he, um, he finally gets the power. He's the ultimate. I have all the power. And then the power actually like turns him into a genie, which actually enslaves him. It's such a great image, right? Of this, we want this ultimate power. We want to be king. We want to be God. And then it actually, that actually is what enslaves us. This is what the curse does. Think of these over and over, right? Tower of Babel. We, we want it all. And then we actually become scattered and disconnected. We want our name known, not realizing we're created actually to make God's name no, and we're looking for a king who isn't like that because it keeps, it keeps failing, right? Whether it's in a nine-year-old or it's in a made-up uh, animated guy or, right? or it's in our lives, a boss, yourself, someone, a coach you had or a teacher you had or you just went, man, they were not great. They were not, I felt the effects of this sin and the curse. I'm looking for one who will lead faithfully and, and truthfully, who love well, who will who, do something about evil and injustice. And this is the language that comes as we look through, if you, if you read the book of Matthew now, as we fast forward from King David, over and over, God's people keep turning away from him and turning back to him, turning away. And we still want this king. In fact, the kingdoms, they do build a temple, but then the king's uh, the kingdoms don't work out. They actually get split. They actually go into exile and other kingdoms rule over them. Nothing's working like they want. They want this kingdom and this true king and the whole time it's really been there. And finally the true king comes. And as Matthew describes Jesus coming in the book of Matthew, he gives a lineage from King David. So we see like this one who's born, this baby who's coming is the one. He's the king. He's the king, the forever king who will establish this forever kingdom, who will build the house that all are welcome to. And the book of Matthew uses this language a lot, this kingdom of God, understanding Jesus is coming to show us what the kingdom of God looks like and to show us who the true king is. In fact, in Matthew 4, 
we hear about King Jesus. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. He's proclaiming the good news, the gospel of what God's kingdom is. And, it, and also proclaiming as he's doing that himself as king. And what does this kingdom look like? It looks like a kingdom that's healing disease and sickness. It's physically acting out what he knows spiritually is about to happen. He's showing them, I have power over these things and just wait. I'm the only king who will have power over all this. He's, he's like the, what finally God wants his people to be. All right, here's a really old philosopher, but he writes about what people saw in a king. Okay, he writes, he writes in 350 BC. So this is like, this is before even Jesus is born, but this is what people there, how they would have seen their king. Because I think in our time, we might think king, we might just think like president, or you might think like emperor. It's hard not to put our, our own like modern view of this on it. This is how people saw the king. It was a lot more than just uh, a person who was in charge for a little bit. Uh, law are two kinds. So he's talking about the law, like the law of the land, kind of how, how we govern life, what life should look like. The animate law, which is the king, and the inanimate, which is the written down law. So law is primary, for with reference to it, the king is lawful. The ruler is fitting, the ruled are free, and the whole community happy. So it's proper for the better to rule, for the worse to be ruled. The, the best ruler would be the one who is closest to the law. So how, how he's explaining, he's just explaining, this is what kings are like. This is what people desire in a king. They're desiring a king who like is the, the, in the flesh the law of the land. So whatever, the, whatever your law of the land is, this is what our people are like. This is the culture. This is the rules of our land. This is the, the way we live. The king is the one who like embodies that brings that to the people, but lives that out. The, the best king would be one who would live that and be that. And then the people would be happy. They'd, they'd happily serve that king and be with that king. And I think this helps us see, this is what Jesus comes and is. This is the king God's people always wanted. And this is the king Jesus is. He just ushers in a kingdom that they maybe are a little unfamiliar with. And so Jesus then, in, in the book of, of Matthew in chapter five, he actually stands and gives this sermon on the mount, we call it. It's a sermon where he kind of explains what the kingdom of God looks like, what the people look like, what, what actually is valued in their kingdom, kind of the, what the real law of the kingdom is. And I wanna show you how King Jesus shares what the kingdom of God looks like, and then, and then King Jesus actually is that. He, he's the animate law. He, actually acts it out, brings that in to show I'm not just the king, but I'm the one who will bring this and I am these things. So here's just a few of those as we see who King Jesus is, the king who's finally come. He says, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And then in Matthew 23, we see Jesus come. He gives these woes to the, to the Pharisees, the leaders there, and he actually mourns. The king comes and doesn't just, isn't just strong and Forceful, he actually mourns over this sin. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Do you even hear this? What kind of king is this? I want to gather you together, but you're not willing. Look, your house is left to you 
desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes and actually mourns. We actually see Jesus cry over the city of Jerusalem when he enters it. So it's a king who actually mourns over the loss, over the sin of people, not just you should have sinned. There's definitely a long history of you broke rules so you can die or you can be imprisoned, but he mourns over this loss. King Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And Jesus calls himself this. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus actually describes himself as meek, as gentle and humble. So a king, again, in my kingdom, the king is gentle. He's humble, and that's who I am. You can come to me when you're broken, when you're weary, when you're tired, and I will give you rest. This is how Jesus' kingdom works. In 5.7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then again, he says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners. He's not looking for people who just follow the rules or people who just continue this cycle of giving sacrifice, but he's looking for those who show mercy. He's looking again in his kingdom. Mercy is what rules. This is the reason we have, we have a place in his home, his grace, right? His mercy. He, God didn't rescue us because we sacrificed enough. He did because he gave us a free gift. He showed mercy to us. In God's kingdom, that's how it works. And then it shows in Matthew 9, it says, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. Hear this language even? They're aware, like, you are in the line of David. You're the king. You're the true king. Please show mercy to us. Throughout this um, section in Matthew, like 8, 9, and 10, he, he just walks around showing great compassion and mercy, and mostly to people who no one else was showing mercy to. Even a lot of people who were just written off as like, something's wrong with you. You must have sinned enough that God's punishing you. Or you're not allowed around us because you're unclean. And Jesus goes right to those people and shows great compassion. In 32, while you were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. I mean, normally you couldn't, you didn't want to get close to. A demon possessed him. Let him be. Let him go. He's done. He's got no chance. He comes to Jesus, and when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. It's because you've never had a king like this. It's a, it's a whole different thing. Your king is different. He's driving out demons. He's power over demons and sickness and illness disease, but the Pharisee said, it is by the price, prince of demons, that he drives out demons. So even the, the, the leaders there are like, I don't like this. This must be a kingdom of Satan and not of God, because they themselves, I think, are even challenged by his leadership and him taking power from them. Again, Jesus here in five, he continues sharing what the kingdom looks like. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He himself is persecuted for righteousness, like the ultimate, right? Pure righteousness. Why? What crime has he committed? We hear this as Jesus is arrested and put before Pilate and is on trial. It says, what crime has he committed? But they shout all louder, crucify him. No, no crime. Pilate's saying he's not committed a crime. And they say, kill him. The most righteous, the only righteous one comes innocent 
and is killed. Our king even, even walks into that, even is that person. So he can say in our kingdom, you will be persecuted for righteousness, for your rightness with God. In Matthew 5, we hear, you have heard that it is said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants you to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. This one, this one is a clear one that shows a different kind of kingdom. King Jesus comes and he says, in our kingdom, uh, we actually aren't even love those who are enemies. Someone slaps you, let them slap your other cheek. Someone wants to take your shirt, you say, here's my coat as well. Because in Jesus' kingdom, we've given all we need. We need nothing else. We don't have to build a kingdom of more for ourselves, and we have nothing else. So Jesus, even here, we see him as king, even act this out himself in Matthew 27. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took him off, off the robe and put his, um, put his own clothes on him. They led him away to crucify him. This is the soldiers are beating him, even as he's you know, innocent, going to be crucified, he's beaten. And I love this. This is the God of the universe. He could say, he could just end their lives right there. They could pick up sticks to hit him and they would fall dead right there. But it's a different kind of kingdom. He knows what's gonna come of this. He knows that he's about to die. If this was like a movie, he would just turn into like a Hulk Thor kind of person, this beast man, and he would just destroy them and you'd all cheer like, yeah, the bad guy's got it. And Jesus takes the beating and then says, I'm gonna go now die also for you. I'm gonna die for all of you who just beat me. I'm gonna die for all these people in all of time that have sinned against me and turned from me so that they could be rescued. Because our king is in the business of rescuing his people because his kingdom is different. He even says then in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. This is when he's teaching them how to pray. He says, don't pray this way where you beat your chest so everyone knows that you're praying. Your prayer is, is an opportunity to commune with God and here's how you pray. And he prays to our Father who art in heaven and in that he says, your kingdom come, your will be done, earth as in heaven. And then right after that, later in Matthew, he sits down to pray before he's arrested to be crucified. And three times he says the same thing. One of the times he says he he went away a second time and prayed, my father, it is not, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken unless I drink, it may be your will, may your will be done. He says over and over three times at that point, your will be done. In God's kingdom, it's about God's will being done because it's the right way and the good way and the redeeming way and the way that rescues and saves and destroys sin and death and doesn't continue it. One more. Matthew then, uh, in Matthew 16, it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their own life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So his kingdom, well, this seems, back, this seems upside down. If you lose your life, you actually gain it. And if you gain a life, if you, if you gather and build your kingdom, you actually lose it. That sounds like Jafar but whoever loses their life will find it, right? This is what we see. This is what Jesus does. This is the gospel, right? 
It says in Matthew 25, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Even that language, there's a king who always has been king over all creation throughout all the world. And in his kingdom, those who enter his family are those who are last and then they become first. I was thirsty for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. In our kingdom, we lay down our preference. We lay down ourselves because we're, we don't need to build our own kingdom because we have a king who's built the kingdom we desire. The kingdom that's rescued us, that brings us, makes us whole, that makes us joyful, that makes us peaceful. The kingdom that gives us the spirit, that gives us the fruit of the spirit. All the things we desire that we'd hope our kingdom that we built would bring us is brought to us by Jesus. And so now we have no problem saying, have have all of me and able to serve and care and love those around us. It's, it's this overflow we talk about all the time here at Hope. It's this, we're built up in Christ, in his kingdom, in his family, and we're able then to have this different kind of kingdom. In Hebrews, it talks about Jesus in this way. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is our king. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It goes on, verse eight. But about the son, he says, your throne, this is from Psalm 45, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated evil. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Hebrews is reminding us, you have a king who's been here forever. His kingdom is all about loving righteousness, what is right, and hating wickedness, what is wrong. In fact, he, to the point he's willing to come and die on a cross and be raised to take care of it and one day return. And so we hear in Revelation, this same image. As God created things in the beginning, he's come as king to establish his kingdom and even live out what, that, what his kingdom looks like to show us what it looks like and then also give us the spirit to empower us to be those people. And one day he returns, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You hear this, like new Jerusalem, not, not the one that David built, but the one that God has built and brought. It's coming out from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, look, God's dwelling place is among the people and he will dwell with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older of things has passed away. And listen to this. We read this all the time, right? This, every day I need to read this to be reminded. This is the king. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what's coming still. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. This is what God's kingdom looks like. This is the kingdom of the true king looks like. And so today as we look at King David, 
It reminds us there is this better, greater king who has come. His name is Jesus and established a kingdom and shown what it looks like. What does his kingdom look like? And how good his kingdom is and how his kingdom again has made us his people and that one day he'll come back and make it all new. I found this I found this image. I was looking for pictures of New Jerusalem. Someone made this wild one. It's like a futuristic Jetsons kind of meets with old, I love it though, this image of this new kingdom. In a world where maybe it's easy to think when you think of a leader or a king, maybe as a, a terrible boss or maybe a king who hasn't ruled very well or an emperor historically or maybe even a politician that we put a lot of hope in could maybe bring about the kind of kingdom that we see Jesus has brought already, maybe a boss or a coach, or maybe even as a parent, we think, what does it look like to lead? Today we get an opportunity to think, what does it look like to join into God's kingdom rather than continue to build our kingdom? Let's take a second here as we, as we wrap up here. What kind of kingdoms do we build? I decided, I thought maybe a Lego kingdom represented our kingdom the best. This is my kingdom that I'm starting to build here. It's pretty cool, huh? It's built out of Legos. When I was a kid, I had Legos. The only Legos I had were like castle themed. I think maybe that was all they had. That was back before they had cool Legos. They were yellow and all it was was a castle and all we had was horses. There was no Star Wars or anything. But we built these little walls and we would destroy them and build them up. And my brother and I would see who'd build the coolest castle Maybe that's an image that helps us. What kind of kingdoms are we trying to build? I think it's a good opportunity just to pause for a second and assess. And remember, we suffer from the same curse as David. We're just in a different position, right? I don't actually get to rule a people. I'm not dancing in the streets, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. But we all get to be bosses and parents, employees. We get to be managers of teams, teachers, coaches. We get to be neighbors, and I find myself often trying to build my own kingdom and then maybe inviting God to that kingdom. I use my blessings, my wealth, my power, my influence, maybe even just how I'm wired, my personality, to build my own little kingdom. A kingdom that serves me. I think often actually a kingdom that just protects me more than serves me in a way that protects me from pain or discomfort. Sometimes I build kingdoms that just protect me from awkward conversations I like to build walls that keep other cursed people out because they hurt me. Or maybe they want to take my stuff or use the stuff that I've earned. That's my stuff. Or maybe they just want to expand their kingdom into my kingdom. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking, how can I build my kingdom? A lot of my time and resources, making myself comfortable. Not just, not just physically comfortable, but I think even like emotionally from getting hurt maybe even just disagreeing from people. So I, so I don't look much like God's kingdom. I don't look much like someone who is going to lay down my life for someone, let alone even just be uncomfortable for someone. For sure not the inconvenience of loving an enemy or even being alone with an enemy. My kingdom doesn't always look a lot like King Jesus' kingdom. And I often just find myself inviting him into my kingdom. Sometimes uh, how it really works for me, I just create a group of people that I, that I agree with maybe politically or socially or we at least agree that we're gonna have a very shallow relationship and just have fun so that none of us get hurt. I kind of create my own little rules and try to live them out in my kingdom. 
If I do invite Jesus to come, I often just ask him to come and, and be quiet or maybe uh, I, I let him understand that we've figured out kind of how the world works and he can obey by our rules. I might say, Jesus, you don't understand the times we're in. You'll figure it out though. Come join our kingdom and hang out in my kingdom. I think we like to build our own kingdoms, make maybe alliances with other kingdoms so we can hate other kingdoms or maybe invade other kingdoms. It's been helpful for me to consider this, not that we're building our own kingdoms necessarily, but that we've built false kingdoms, making names for ourselves, which eventually we just wait for their inevitable end. Instead though, today I think we can be reminded that there is a kingdom, that there is a king who's true and right and loving and forgiving and makes a way for all of you to be heirs to his throne. Not a king who just rules from his throne high above and uses us, but a king who has come to rescue us and cause us family, even while we are enemies. A king that has always been and always will be, a king who will return to this, who has returned to this cursed land and he will make all things right one day. A king who will never let us down, he will never go, he will never leave us or forsake us, a king who is and will always be with his people. So we don't have to stop making our own kingdoms because that's a bad thing to do or because like Jesus is gonna be angry with us. We get to say yes to Jesus' kingdom because it is the only true king and the only true kingdom. It's what we've all been looking for. It's why you build your kingdom. Jesus has already fulfilled that and made that possible. I wanna invite Jordan back up here just so we can sing together. One of the things we do in the kingdom of God is we worship our God. In fact, this week I heard from someone that said, uh, this is um, when we get to experience the kingdom of God is when we, we gather together to sing about our great king who brought us into the kingdom. One of the ways I saw that in my own life and many of us experienced was last week when uh, we got to gather together with uh, First Baptist and sing together. There was something about singing together in, uh, in, in English and in Spanish, being in a room with others from another church that reminded me that we're all in this great kingdom together. Two churches that are different, have different people at them, might even believe some different things, for sure even just speak a different language but we're all still in God's kingdom together and can worship together. Um, I shared this this week in our weekly update, but afterwards, uh, uh, a lady from First Baptist came up and gave me a little hug, and she said, thanks, and she said, like, I'm, glad we're, I'm glad we're friends. I was like, we are, even more than that. I think we're family, um, and I'm glad we're family too, and I think this is the opportunity we have in a culture that wants to divide and create kingdoms and put kingdoms against each other to say there is a kingdom that's good and a king who is good. And it really changes everything. Let me pray for us and we can sing to our good, good king. Lord, thanks for your goodness, your kindness, your love for us. Thank you that you've come to rescue us, that you have established your kingdom. That you didn't just come and tell us, but you like embodied it. You were, you are king and you have established this new um, covenant with us. A freedom of love, of compassion, of your power and your goodness and your truth. I pray that we would be people who would embrace 
that people who would say yes to you, that we'd surrender to you, that we'd give ourselves to you, and from that you'd fill us and we would overflow your kingdom uh, and those around us and others would know you and join. We love you, Lord. You're really good to us. Amen.